The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Europe fights big American tech. Facebook has an Africa problem. And Mumbai throws a spanner in the wheels of ride-hailing services. These are the topics we'll be discussing in this edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me, as always, is Anthony Curry. Hi, Jen. Later in the program, we're going to pass the mic to our colleagues in Asia. But first... One of the largest gathering of tech companies just concluded in Lisbon. The location highlighted the lopsided showing from U.S.-based companies versus homegrown startups from the European continent. But Europe is shaping up to be an interesting battleground among Silicon Valley rivals and beyond. On the line from London is our Breaking Views columnist, Liam Proud. Hi, Liam. Hi, Jen. All right, so you attended this web summit in Portugal uh, last week, and it's it's huge. It's a massive gathering of um, yeah. all sorts of tech companies, right? And and most of them seem to be from the U.S. So why don't you just kind of tell us why is this a significant event? I mean, it, it's significant because it's huge and because the big people go there. I mean, it's, it's quite young as well. I think this is maybe the third year it's been in Lisbon. Um, it was previously in Dublin. Um, and it's basically one of the only places where you can go and get, you know, extremely high-ranking people from Apple, Google. Um, You had the Shell CEO from Europe, which is quite interesting given that that was the the main European contingent on the center stage. So what was Shell doing there? So so Shell was there talking ironically about whether or not big tech was the new big oil. Um, Obviously Shell is a kind (laughs) of famously to be disrupted industry. Um, And their CEO was there talking about whether or not you could say the same for tech. This this is an interesting thing because big oil is always a big target, right? People have always looked at it as like this is these are huge lumbering Uh, companies. And, you know, maybe we need to do something about this. You see it with, um, you know, ESG investing, et cetera. And, And it's interesting because to me, like Europe is becoming the ground zero, if you will, of this the drumbeat of break up these companies and you know data should be consumers and they should own it and they should figure out what to do with it and this whole notion that Google Facebook Amazon in particular have gotten a free ride off the consumer and Europe seems to be the place where they're trying to clamp down on this yeah and it, and, it, and it's interesting that kind of if you if you talked to European regulators there and if you talk to European startups that, that were at the conference in Lisbon um, is you could kind of close your eyes and, and sometimes you weren't sure whether you were talking to an entrepreneur or, or a policymaker. I mean you'd hear huh. a lot of the same phrases sometimes. I mean obviously they're coming at it from slightly different points of view. You have the likes of Margaret Vestager who's the European antitrust czar and she is very worried about this kind of this hoard of data that people like Google and Facebook um, and to a lesser extent, um, Apple um, sit on and, and worried that that can sort of be anti-competitive in the way that it allows them to, 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 to perhaps you know, lock up consumers and make it very difficult for them to move. But then if you talk to a startup, I mean, one that I met with was a company called Taxify. Um, they mm-hmm. have more or less the same complaint. They'll say, you know, Google has all this maps data. It shouldn't be kept secret under lock and key in, in Silicon Valley somewhere. If it was out in the open, um, it would stimulate innovation. 
Um, and you know, when you when you put those arguments to regulators, they they they, they say, yeah, that's that's something we want to look at. I mean, we we we, we don't necessarily want to nationalise data, but we need to think about how we can how we can kind of democratise all this a little bit. All right. So, Liam, in your estimation, how much of this is sour grapes, and how much of it is true concern that you know this is this is a real issue? I think I would say it's about 50-50. I mean, it's difficult to see inside the heads of, of, of these regulators, right? And and yeah. if you talk to them, you know, even even off record, they they get they'll kind of go red in the face if you if you make it sound like this is a retaliatory thing or or any some kind of inferiority complex. Um, but it's also you know it's hard to imagine them putting forward some of these proposals if some of the big you know german and french and british and italian and spanish household name companies were being affected um that's 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 my reason for thinking that partly it's um a kind of tit for tat kind of thing but on the other hand you know the the policies have a lot of sense behind them and and you'll find you know not just european corporates kind of you know aligning with them the 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 apple ceo tim cook has talked a lot about this data industrial complex um, and you know it's easy to see that as him putting the boot on a rival like Google a little bit which is probably going on but but you know it's it's not just kind of European sour grapes. Yeah your point about Tim Cook is a really interesting one because you're starting to see this argument waft over the pond if you will and you know it certainly is coming up in uh, the U.S. in terms of, of regulations and in and, and Congress, and they're starting to take a harder look at this. And what I also find fascinating is that Silicon Valley is turning on itself. And Tim Cook and his remarks in Brussels, I think, is, you know, kind of exactly exhibit A of this. The, you know, he's taken some real pot shots at Google. I mean, that was a, that was a big deal, I thought. Um, when, when I saw it, and, and not just Google, Facebook too. And he's trying to say, hey, listen, we don't use your data for uh, money in terms of like advertising, which Google and, and Facebook do. Which, which, which I mean, he, I think he's right, but I think let's, let's, not, let's not give him too easy a ride. I mean, when I was in Lisbon, I was, the, the irony wasn't lost um, on some people that there was an Apple executive there Kind of making this 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 case that Apple's different to the rest of the tech um, giants, you know, which was happening at the same time as finance ministers were meeting in Brussels across Europe um, to try and work out how to tax tech companies properly. Um, in their view, Apple is is one of the worst offenders there. Um, yeah. On the other side of things, you, you also have this this big problem that that people in Brussels talk a lot about of the dominance of app stores. Um, one grievance that companies like Spotify have raised is that they're effectively distributed by one of their major competitors and a, a lot of their revenue ends up going to Apple. So Apple kind of wins, you know, whether or not it's Apple Music Service wins. Um, and there's a lot of nervousness that, that so much digital business happens through these big online intermediaries. And Apple is certainly one of them because its app store is so, so dominant. Um, but at the same time, you know, that, that also applies to the Google App Store called Google Play and any company that's doing business through Amazon is, is, is also in that kind of crosshair. So wh- why don't we talk a little bit about um, just the, the startup um, scene in Europe right now? I mean, how is it doing? Are there companies that are starting to thrive there? Are you seeing more financing going towards European companies or are people taking the stance, which is very much here in the United States, it's very difficult 
to go up against a Google or Facebook. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference um, with a lot of venture capitalists, and they were basically saying you would be, you know, crazy to finance anything that was going to try and take ad share from Google or Facebook or, or even do like e-commerce with Amazon. Are you finding the same situation in Europe? I think there's a recognition that going up directly against these guys is extremely hard and that's maybe why you need regulatory help in some areas. Um, but the specific factors that used to hold European startups back, um, I think people generally agree are, are becoming less acute. I mean, just one problem that, that people used to talk about a lot was a kind of cultural issue that you didn't have, you know, these, these hubs like Silicon Valley or all these spin-offs out of Stanford University or dropouts of these big kind of tech-heavy universities that would then go right. and found companies. Um, there was some sort of, short of a shortage of talent in Europe. I don't think anyone thinks that's the case anymore. You have, I think, by Atomico's est estimate, this is a venture firm that's quite prominent in Europe, about one in five European MBA graduates goes into tech now. Um, you've hmm. got more developers, more professional software developers in Europe than you do in America, which is partly hmm. a function of just a bigger population. Um, but right. crucially, you also have a, a much richer funding environment than you did in the past. It's still nowhere near the level of maturity of, of the American venture funding ecosystem. But, but, but in the first seven months of 2018, there was, there was $11 billion for European VC funds raised. Um, now that's 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 a big number. It's also a lot more than they raised in the whole year for any period between 2008 and 2015. So the rate of growth there is extremely fast. Okay, so progress. Progress, um, but you know, it's you probably still need a regulatory helping hand if you're gonna if you're gonna be fighting on a level playing field with with, with the American big tech companies. Okay, well, Liam, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it, and we know you'll be following this closely. Thanks very much, Jim. Facebook's inability to police fake content on its network is well known in the United States, not least for the controversy of Kremlin-backed agents manipulating ads and news to sway uh, voters in the American elections in 2016. Today, though, we're turning to the African country of Cameroon. A fake video there has fanned the flames and a military crackdown has ensued because of it, not unlike the situation in Myanmar earlier in the year. Ed Cropley is joining us on the line. He's a South Africa columnist. Well, actually, basically all things Africa, Ed, I believe. Uh, welcome to the show for the first time. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So, Ed, tell us, what exactly happened here with this, this fake video? I, I believe it got people thinking that uh, there was a degree of cannibalism going on. Well, there's been a, a political schism in uh, political and social schism in Cameroon for about two or three years now. Um, the country used to be a German colony and then after the First World War got carved up between the, the English and the French um, and so split into two effectively, one Anglophone region of about a quarter of the population and the rest being Francophone. And, and by and large they've got along fairly well. Um, but in the last couple of years, um, the English have started to feel rather put out uh, and oppressed and have started to, to rebel, especially over the use of French teachers to teach English in schools. Um, and the, the government in, in Yaoundé, the capital, has really started to crack down on this. And this video has sort of really fed into that mix. Um, it purported to show a big pot of human flesh being cooked on a fire by a, an African man with a, a the long stick 
and he was purported by one or two users of Facebook in Cameroon to be an English-speaking separatist. Um, to Cameroonians, um, he immediately struck out, it was blatantly obvious this guy was a, a Nigerian, um, and it turned out the course of the footage came from a film set um, in the famous Nigerian Nollywood film industry. Right, so this then, the, the, the problem grew pretty rapidly. It stayed on Facebook's website, as I understand it, from the Reuters news story that, that, that sparked our interest in this for quite some time until it was finally taken down. And, and that's the crux of where your story's going, isn't it? Is, 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 you know, what exactly does Facebook do to combat all of this? But let's step back a bit from that. I mean, how has Facebook become so, so big in Africa that, that this is such an important thing? I mean, web access isn't particularly easy to come by in a lot of the, a lot of the, the continent, is it? But Facebook came along and said, we'll give you free access to the internet, but you just have to go through the Facebook portal. And, uh, you know, Africans signed up to this uh, by the million, literally, um, because it was it enabled them to contact their friends online, enabled them to um, get past poor mobile networks or indeed landline uh, networks that were virtually non-existent. And so suddenly they're opening up an entire continent um, online for free. Indeed, many Africans access the internet only through Facebook and, and you hear anecdotal, um, lots and lots of anecdotal stories about Africans who believe that Facebook is the internet. Um, so you can very quickly get a sense of how powerful um, a social weapon or a social tool rather um, Facebook is. So I mean, I mean for, for Facebook and I assume others like Google are, are thinking along similar lines, this has got to be Okay, it comes across as this wonderful philanthropic thing to do here. Let's provide uh, universal access to the internet for free as long as you use our site. But also it means that um, Facebook and others can then turn around to advertisers and say, look, we've cracked the Africa conundrum that has, has bedeviled you guys for so long. We can now advertise there. Isn't this great? But then, of course, you get this issue of all the, the so-called fake news, or in this case, that you're talking about the fake videos. So where does this leave Facebook? Well, um, as you say, uh, uh, Facebook's making money out of Africa. It won't reveal exactly how much money because when it comes to its uh, financial reckoning, it lumps in Africa along with the Middle East and uh, South America. Um, but if you, it says it makes about $6.5 per user per year out of that entire region. So if you, if you assume that to be roughly equal across that entire region, then basically Facebook is making nearly a billion dollars um, in advertising sales from Africa each year, which is not a small amount of money, um, given, especially given that the problems that other um, sectors and other industries have making money in the continent. Um, but Facebook, of course, one of its costs is monitoring the online content. Um, it's been spending a lot of money monitoring online content, obviously, in the United States and in Europe after the US elections, or before the US elections, after the US elections, and, uh, and, and then subsequent elections in Europe. Um, in Africa, the, the monitoring is still done remotely, largely from Britain or indeed the United States, for potentially in the next seven years, 600 million people. You're right, you get to 600 million plus, or even now with almost 200 million. Um, this is, but this is not like policing um, content in the UK or in the United States where you're looking at you know, one main language and maybe three, four, five, six others. And I'll add that they can't even police their own content yes. in, yeah, in, in their the, home base. Yes, still struggling yeah, that. Yeah. So, but Africa adds an extra complexity beyond one complexity, in fact, because of the, 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 the whole fragmented nature of 
uh, of culture and languages on the region. I mean, talk to us about that. That's exactly it. So, so the problems that Facebook has in the United States, you, you can multiply um, by a, a factor of, say, four or five in Africa, um, given the complexity, the geographical complexity. There are nearly 50 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, many of them have English as a first language or French as a first language. But within that, there are many, many local languages um, and different dialects. So up to about 2,000 different languages or distinct dialects across the continent. And obviously, if you are trying to um, stir up a, an ethno, um, ethno-political base, you're likely to do that in your local dialect or your local pidgin. So that, that implies you need a lot more people than you might need in... The United States to monitor this. So how, how does that work then? What, what do we? What do you think Facebook should be doing? Because the cost would be huge, wouldn't it? And um, the cost could be huge. Facebook says that it is investing heavily um, in uh, boosting content monitoring um, for Africa, and especially in the case of Cameroon, it says that this is now one of its priority countries on the continent. Um, the problem is that the, it doesn't have a presence in Cameroon. So as I was saying just now, it won't understand the, the local nuance, the local context, possibly even the local dialects. Um, Facebook doesn't give more uh, information that, than more details to, to its efforts. So the only real thing we've got to go on is what it did in, in Myanmar, I mean Southeast Asia, where Facebook had, was forced to uh, recruit 100 local monitors, uh, Burmese language monitors, um, after a sort of hate camp, online hate campaign via Facebook against the Rohingya Muslim minority. So Ed, so just you, you did a quick calculation of this. If, if, if Facebook's to do a good job in Africa, what does it need and how much do you think it's going to cost? Um, well, just very, very rough back of the envelope stuff. If you say if the Burmese response is your benchmark, that's 100 monitors. Um, and then you take 100 monitors across 50 countries, that's 5,000 people, which is a lot. Um, Facebook employs something like 27,000, 28,000 people at the moment. So this is a significant number of people. But then um, on the cost basis, if you, if you think that uh, local monitors are more effective, then put those, uh, put, put those monitors in Africa, where wages are much, much cheaper. Um, and I think in South Africa, which again is one of the more expensive countries in the continent, your average call center operative um, is paid about six, $7,000 a year. So overall, 5,000 uh, monitors at, at $6,000 a year, you're not looking at much more than 30 million, 40 million um, to have an army of, of local monitors across the continent who will um, bring, you know, that, that, that's another 6,000 jobs to Africa, which Africa will like. Facebook will also yeah. insulate itself against, you know, potentially catastrophic uh, human rights um, abuse allegations and accusations. And also do, does so for, for, well, considering it's making maybe a billion dollars, it can do so relatively um, economically. Yes, and, and it can do it relatively economically. And, um, and then it's like the... So its claims to philanthropy and bringing sort of a free, free uh, access to the internet in Africa are, are slightly more um, plausible. Great. Well, Ed, thanks for talking to you. That's an absolutely fascinating story. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you. I'm Clara Ferreira Marquez in Singapore, and I'm chatting today with my fellow columnist Una Galani based in Mumbai. Now, spare a thought for Una and millions of other commuters in India's financial capital, hit in recent weeks by transport strikes that have left the city in chaos. Not disruption on the city's railways, but a stoppage by drivers working for ride-hailing services, Uber, local rival Ola, two companies that have filled a yawning gap in India's transport infrastructure. 
You know, what's going on here and what does it tell us about how to manage new farm dependence on new economy fixes in emerging markets? You know, Clara, sometimes we don't notice a vulnerability in a system until it rears up and slaps you in the face. And that's exactly what's happened here. Uh, driver, drivers uh, for Uber and Ola have been on strike for the last two weeks and have only just now come back to work, albeit temporarily, for the big Diwali New Year festival here. They are extremely unhappy. Fuel prices have absolutely rocketed, are up 20% this year, and they just want higher wages. Well, not wages. They, they're not paid wages, of course. They want higher fares and minimum payments for shorter trips. I mean, the disruption has been really intense in a city that simply doesn't have a modern, established public transport system. So it's left office-going commuters like me resorting to pretty sketchy means to get around. Um, I don't own a car, so I've been, uh, and, and, and I've been relying on Uber and Ola to fulfill all my transport needs for, for, for most of the time that I've been in India. But I've now been having to take a tuk-tuk uh, on multi-lane highways or trying to board these really overcrowded trains, um, which can be pretty scary because they race through the city with their doors wide open. So you know, it's really like going back in time. And essentially, I think we've realized in Mumbai that in the last five years or so, um, many parts of this vast emerging market have just become awfully dependent on these firms. And they are essentially providing the services of a critical public utility without any kind of regulation. And, you know, that's just been the big realization, I think, that everyone has, has, has been hit by this week. So are there actually suggestions in terms of how to regulate it? How can you regulate a ride-hailing service? It's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, it is possible to, say, uh, implement a minimum a minimum fare for, a, for any journey, for a short journey, or to like get, put a minimum on the amount per kilometre that you uh, will charge for the trip. Um, and of course, you can always give the riders just a bigger cut of the of the actual total fare because, you know, like, you know, Uber or Ola take around 20, 25 percent, say, of of the money that um, we pay. And so that's the commission. So you, you can also tweak that a bit, too. And you can also um, there has been discussion about a fuel based price index. So that would also take account for the sort of violent swings in commodity prices. So there are potential ways that you can, uh, you know, at least provide a base at the bottom end of things. Well, it also looks from the outside, at least very much like a market held hostage by companies that have grown very fast and that have pretty much unsustainable business models at the moment. Both of them, Uber in particular, is talking about a listing. And what impact does all of this have for that? And, and indeed for the this discussion that we've had for quite some time now, the potential combination of Uber and Ola, given they share an investor in, in SoftBank. Well, look, you're right. The, like the crux of this problem is that these firms handed out huge, huge subsidies to win market share. And it worked, right? So drivers gave up their salary jobs. They took out car loans. They earned over $1,000 a month. And that is a huge, uh, that, that's like more than half the per capita average income in the country. Um, but now Ola and Uber are trying to make money and they're handing out less incentives. And so drivers are earning about a quarter or barely half of that amount now. This is like three or four years on from when these these companies first came into the market. I mean, I would say that India accounts for a large part of the excitement around Uber. And it's probably worth more than one tenth of its $70 billion market value. And I guess I would base that on 
Ola's mooted valuation that's worth around, it's a bit larger than Uber in India. It's, it's kind of worth around $6 billion. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword for investors. You know, they want to see these companies turn a profit. Uh, Ola's losses in India last year were about $700 million. I think Uber would have been somewhere in a similar range. But if in trying to do that, they disrupt cities, then they are likely to get slapped with tighter rules that could ultimately cap how much they make. So they're kind of in a very sort of fragile and delicate place at the moment. So what lessons, I mean, we've seen ride hailing here where, where I am in Southeast Asia. We've also seen a, an explosion of ride hailing very much for the same reasons. You know, They're fixing a problem. There wasn't an easy way to get around. And these companies have really filled that gap. What lessons can, can this region, for example, take from India? Look, I don't things still haven't settled down here. So we'll have to wait and see how things play out in Mumbai after the holiday period. There's, you know, at the moment, governments are not really getting involved. Politicians are not really getting involved. They're letting the companies and the drivers sort this out in a kind of very disorganized fashion. Um, but as I look across the region, whether it's India or in places like Indonesia, closer to you, where you have Grab and Gojek fighting out, you know, I think these governments will all hit a point where they need to reassess how they let these ride-hailing firms do businesses. I mean, it's kind of laughable that you have these drivers working 16 hours a day, providing a critical public service, and ride-hailing firms want to call these guys mini-entrepreneurs. Well, that's just kind of tragic. Thank you very much, Una. Thank you, Clara. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all of our guests, Liam Proud, Ed Cropley, Clara Fiera Marquez, and Una Galani. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.